So welcome everyone to the June 2022 Mark Leverage Magic Podcast. As ever, I'm really thrilled that you've decided to spend the next half an hour in my company. In the UK, I'm sure that June 2022 is going to be remembered basically for one thing, that it is the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. 70 years on the throne. 70 years is a long time to be doing anything, quite frankly, and to be a head of state for that long is unbelievable. She obviously started young and has lived long. And although she may not have had much choice in the matter of being queen all this time, she's certainly done an amazing job through a period when, well, let's face it, our country has been through all sorts of ups and downs. Well, it's inevitable because Britain does love a party that the authorities decided that rather than people taking time off work and basically bringing the country to a halt, they would tag several bank holiday days together near a weekend and make sure that everybody had the time off anyway so that they could party in style. So Thursday the 2nd and Friday the 3rd are going to be bank holidays followed by the weekend. So if you're one of these people who plans to, to do something serious at the beginning of June, and given that probably most of the country is going to wake up on Monday the 6th of June with a bit of a hangover, you might want to wait till later in the week before you go ahead with that serious project. Of course, in theory, for us entertainers, Everybody having a party is good news. And I suppose in some ways it probably is. There'll be people who have lots of bookings, no doubt, over the four-day celebration period. But uh, without wishing to sound a bit bar humbug about it all, I do wonder whether it might end up being a little bit, for the entertainers, for some of the entertainers anyway, a bit of a damp squib. You think about the Millennium celebrations in 2000. I, like many other entertainers, got ditched at the last at the last moment by organisers who had great plans for millennium celebration parties, bookloads of entertainers, and then when the take up of tickets just really wasn't that great, basically, well, ran for the door, ran for the exit door, and left us all sitting high and dry with no bookings and no money. It wasn't great fun, and I do wonder whether there are some of the bigger events that are going to are projected to go ahead for this particular celebration may end up a little bit like that too. The, the other aspect of this is that, um, and I notice this particularly with the online agencies such as Bark and Add to Event and others, that there have been a lot of inquiries from ordinary people in the street, as it were, who are literally going to have a street party or some other relatively small gathering in which they're hoping to get entertainers. And I mean, a bit suspicious of those too, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of these people will never have organised a party before, never mind a celebration of, of something like this, will have all these great ideas. But when it comes to it, do they have the chops to actually uh, sort it out and make it all happen properly? Or is it all going to be a bit of a dog's dinner? I wouldn't be surprised if also a lot of these people made inquiries and were pretty shocked at how much a magic entertainer for a celebration weekend like that might actually cost. You know, if you think about it, if you've never booked a magician before, or if, let's say, perhaps you've only booked it for, a, I don't know, a half an hour magic show at a children's party or something, you might have, have expectations of fees being quite low. But for this particular occasion, because potentially entertainers are in demand, then the price, no doubt, has been hiked. And as a result of that, they're going to get a bit of a rude shock. Now, when you're dealing with these online agencies, of course, as entertainers, we see an inquiry. If we like the look of it, then we pay in order to submit our quote. 
well, it's very easy to work your way through a lot of credit points quoting for people who, quite frankly, probably have no real intention of, only book, of ever booking anybody once they discover just what the real costs uh, are in order to do so. So if you've got any bookings, I really do hope that they go well for you and that uh, they are all that they promised that they would be and that you get your money and that they are a fun experience. And personally, I'm not going to be doing any at all. We're getting the whole family together and we're having several days of fun on our own, which to my way of thinking is a lot better than going to somebody else's party. I had an email from a magic friend of mine the other day and he told me in it that he was busy shedding. Now, I thought about his house and his garden. I was thinking, has he actually got a shed? Is he buying in a load more sheds? Is he going to get rid of any shed he might have? But no, he explained that shedding something to do with garden uh, houses at all. It was to do with slimming down his collection of magic books and magic props. And I suppose this is something that uh, a lot of us perhaps idly consider doing from time to time. You know, you open up your, your cupboard and you see the mass of stuff piled in there and you think, oh, there must be so much of this clobber I'm never going to use. Why don't I get rid of it? And so if you've got the energy and the time, you start to pull stuff out and you start to look at it and you, make, you say you're going to make a pile, a pile of things you're going to keep and a pile of things that you're going to throw away. And I'll bet that you can probably spend several hours pulling stuff out of the cupboard, making these two piles. And when you finish, you stand back and discover you've got two packs of cards and an old silk in the throwaway pile and a mountain of other stuff in the to keep pile. Because the fact of the matter is we magicians, well, we're certainly we're a bit sentimental, but I think also we have this image that some useless prop which we bought in a flush of youth and which is probably bent at the edges or going rusty. And we see this and we at the time when we bought it, we thought it was going to be the answer to making us into a star studded magician. Instead of which we put it in a drawer, put it in a box, put it in a case and we haven't seen it for 40 years. And suddenly you pull it out. Oh, no, I can't get rid of that. That might be useful someday. I know I've certainly done it myself and I, I've also done it when buying things. I might be going around a shop maybe it may be a toy shop or a stationer's store and I'll see something that's novel. It might be, it could be anything, but you think to yourself, oh, do you know that? I bet I could do work out a trick with that. And then you end up buying it, don't you? This weird object. And your wife normally will say to you, what are you buying that for? Say, oh, I've had this brilliant idea and this is just the thing I need for it. And of course you take it home and put it in a cupboard or a drawer and you completely forget about it. And then that's one of the things that you pull out 40 years later. What on earth have I got this for? Can't imagine what I was going to do with that. And this is kind of the problem, really, isn't it? Looking at things that we've bought in the past and invested our time and possibly some energy, certainly money in, to then throw it away, either metaphorically speaking, I mean, you might sell it, but to get rid of it sometimes seems a bit of like a a way of saying, I made a bad decision all those years ago. I really shouldn't have bought this. Now I've got to get rid of it. So how do you do it? Especially with things that have some intrinsic value, say like magic books. Some magic books, especially when they are now in, in sort of relatively rare, if they're in good condition, they can fetch a lot of money. 
if you're prepared to go to the right places to try and sell it. And you look at the book, you think, it's a beautiful book. Am I ever going to read this book again? And you sort of think, well, no, I'm not really. Can I bother to sell it? Do I want to sell it? Oh, but it's a beautiful book. Look at the binding on it. Look at the illustrations, quality of the paper. Oh, I'll just put it back on the shelf. And so you end up putting it back on the shelf where it will continue to collect dust because it's true. You will never take that book and actually read any of it. There are some books. I mean, I think, for instance, the Card College series reference books like that. And I've also got some um, compilations, bound compilations of things like Apocalypse. And, and I do, I dip back into these things consistently and often. So they to me, those books to me are very valuable and I would never get rid of those. But there are other books which I've, which I've bought over the years and I've enjoyed them well enough, might have got something out of it. But I really look at it and I think, am I honestly ever going to look at this again? And the answer is probably no. And it's at that point that you have to start shedding. If it doesn't call to you anymore, then you really should get rid of it and make that pile of discards big enough to warrant either going out to marketplace and selling the stuff, either as a, a job lot or in individual things if there's a lot of value in the individual items, but just getting rid of them rather than hanging on to them. And then when you finally uh, kick the bucket, leaving the uh, responsibility of getting rid of it to somebody else. A long time ago, I had a friend who worked in the pharmaceutical department of uh, Boots the Chemist. And he was telling me what I thought at the time, and I still do, a really interesting story about vitamins. Now, the company wanted to launch a new range of vitamins, and these vitamins were aimed at women in their 50s. So menopausal women who could be given a new zest for life in their 50s by apparently taking these supplements. And because they um, were very much targeted at ladies in their 50s, they went to a marketing agency and they said, we want you to design us a box to put these tablets in. So the company thought, OK, ladies in their 50s. So they, they produced a box that was beautiful. Lots of pastel shades and of, of colour and flowers and very gentle sort of looking illustrations. And they, they look gorgeous. So they put their vitamins in those and put them on the shelves and basically didn't sell any. It was a disaster. The boxes may look beautiful, but they look beautiful in Boots the Chemist, but not on anybody in anybody's uh, sort of cabinet in their bathrooms. Nobody bought them. And they couldn't understand it. They thought, well, vitamins are vitamins. There's nothing very radical about the actual object itself. It must be the packaging is not getting noticed. There's something wrong with it. And then they suddenly realised that women in their 50s, the implication of the box was that they were basically, it was time for them to put their slippers on, sit in a comfy chair, put a, a cardigan on and watch daytime television. Whereas actually what the, the, the point of, supposed to be the point of the vitamin supplements was, no, your 50s is a time to have a new zest for life, go out and do things. So to have a box that made it look like completely the opposite was the wrong image. So they went to another ad agency and this agency designed a really jazzy looking box with strong colours and vibrant lines all over it. And although it didn't look particularly nice, it was very striking. It hit the right chord. And from that point onwards, 
these boxes of vitamins sold really, really well. They got noticed and women wanted them. So you might say, well, what's that got to do with magic? Well, you think about magic tricks when they are re-released. Sometimes you have a trick that's very old and a dealer will take that and completely redesign the packaging, the marketing, and bring it out as if it's something new. And, and it makes you look again, doesn't it? In fact, I did this back in the, I think it was the 1990s. I got my mate Jay Fortune to draw illustrations to, to put on the packaging of every single one of my marketed products at the time. It was a lot of work for him. He did about, he must have done about 70 or 80 different illustrations. And sort of overnight, if you like, in other words, the next time I went to a convention, I took what looked like about 80 new tricks with me because I'd completely changed the look of everything in my range. All the tricks were exactly the same, but they didn't look like the same. So when people came up to the stand, they went, oh, what's all this? What's the new stuff? And it made people look again. I mean, supermarkets do it all the time. They move certain things around to make you look again, don't they? It's a way of saying to you, well, I know cornflakes used to be in aisle three towards the end, but we're going to move it to aisle 26 right at the front, just so you've got to go searching for it, because while you're searching for it, you may see other stuff. So for magic tricks, it's, it is a very good way to come up with something fresh is by redesigning the marketing or the packaging. As magicians and as performers, you can do the same thing too. If your image has been the same forever, your, your sort of brand, the way you look, what you dress, how you dress, the props that you use, the pho photographs you on video that you use for your publicity, if that's all been very much of a muchness for ages, why not suddenly, if you've got the, the will, enthusiasm and the imagination, think about changing it all. You don't change your act. You don't change the type of magician that you are, but you jazz it all up. You might have, instead of having photographs, you might get a caricature of yourself done and use that instead, a completely new look. Your website, instead of being all yellows and greens, you could go to blue and reds and have a completely different layout. There are so many things that you can do to make people look again. People who had seen you before and thought they knew everything they were that they had to know about you, suddenly look at you again and say, who is this guy? Oh, it's so-and-so, wow. And it does give the impression that you're vibrant, that you're of the moment, and that you're keen to, to reinvent yourself almost, even though actually what you're really doing is just peddling the same stuff, but in a different way. So maybe worth a thought, if you're feeling a bit in the doldrums or in a rut, give yourself a complete change, both in publicity and the way you look, and see what happens. I've just finished reading a book, the review of which will appear in the July issue of Magic Scene. And the interesting thing about this book is that it's not a magic book at all. It's in fact, it's a novel. And it's written by Tony Nicholson, who is a magician. And it's called The New Messiah. And this book is actually, it's a political novel. But the central character is a magician called Sergei. And this, this particular character starts off as a sleight of hand con man, sort of scamming people uh, with the sort of three card trick and, and a walnut shell and pea game in the streets. He progresses from there to 
being an in-demand close-up magician using fantastic skills with cards, which he does at banquets and corporate events. And then he starts to realise when he starts to do some mentalism, the power of that particular medium and that, in fact, because so many people are, when it's convincing enough, prepared to believe that he can really read minds, they give him a, a, a kudos and a power which magic alone had never given him before. And so he starts to do just that, to just almost be like a psychic. And the, the story continues with him getting ever more power, ever more popularity. And eventually he ends up in, in, involved in politics. And without, don't want to spoil the book if you read it, because it's a very entertaining read. But basically the book itself is a comment on the superficiality of modern day politics and how that almost anyone with a following can get into a position of power. But the fact that Tony used a magician as an example I thought was interesting and it brings into, into focus in a way the responsibility that we as magicians have for the powers that we apparently demonstrate that we can do things with. In the book Serge steps in really as you can clearly see as you read it he steps over the line. He starts to believe his own publicity to a certain extent, but others certainly believe that he is genuine. And I think this is a problem for, for magicians sometimes, that they get can get imbued with powers or a belief, people believe in powers that they just simply don't have. And it can be slightly dangerous. I mean, you think about mediums, for instance, people like the late James Randi, and Jamie Ian Swiss, for instance, uh, these, these performers really dislike mediums because they don't believe that there's any such thing as a genuine one. And yet mediums and psychics, they try to make out that they can bring messages to, of loved ones from the afterlife. And they feel that to give people who are already possibly emotionally vulnerable this fake hope is just a, a terrible way to, to take money off them and it's, it's damaging to these, these people's well-being. So they will do everything they can to, to expose them and to show that these people are in fact charlatans. So I suppose it's, it, it's where you draw the line between where we want to impress people by saying that we are magicians and we can do special things but not taking that perhaps so far that, that we give the impression that we can walk on water literally. Okay, dynamo can walk on water. You know what I mean. It's it's something that it's almost like a responsibility, perhaps. That especially I think people who do mentalism, people like Darren Brown, and Darren has always said he tells his audiences, "Listen, I can't read minds really. I can I can suggest things to you. I can perhaps influence the way you think and do things, but I can't actually read your mind." And yet people still walk out of his show saying, "Well, he must be able to read minds because that's the only way you could do it." So I think in that sense, he's got the balance right. He's, he's not pretending to be real, but if people wish to think that he is, well, he can't really help that. So that's why I think people like Yuri Geller, who came along in the 70s and, and ever since then has managed to maintain this reputation of having these special powers, that in fact he's not just a cabaret magician from Israel. And that he has is something more and more far more special. And he's maintained this for decades and is still this to this day claiming credit for various things that happen out in the world. He says, Oh, I, I did that, I influenced that. 
it's amazing how he's managed to perpetrate this myth for so long and power to his elbow because he's, he's made a very good job of it. But I do think that for all of us, there is a line to be drawn and I for one really don't want to step over that line. Now, I've mentioned in these podcasts a number of times previously how much I have enjoyed doing Zoom lectures, not only to clubs around the world, and I think it's a wonderful way to, to cross international barriers by having a Zoom lecture rather than trying to go to the expense of flying a performer from one side of the planet to the other, but also I've organised a number of my own events, so not through the auspices of a club at all, but just off my own bat. And I mentioned in the last podcast last month that I was having uh, another one and it has now taken place. And it was the Inner Circle Zoom card session. It was actually the first time pretty much I had ever done a lecture entirely on card magic. But I do have a lot of ideas in that field. And a lot of the time when I do a lecture because of the variety of material that I normally like to put together, I, I only feature a few card tricks. I don't major on it. So it's a bit frustrating sometimes to have all these good ideas which really never get to see the light of day. So I decided to have this Zoom event dedicated just to some of my card routines. And I know that there were two or three people contacted me and were a bit frustrated because they wanted to come to the event but they just simply couldn't make the date. And, and they were very disappointed because it was a one-off and it's not going to be repeated. However, mindful of the fact there might be others in the same position who would have come had they been able to, I decided to, I recorded it and I've now produced an edited version lasting a couple of hours in which you can watch from the comfort of your own chair at home via a downloadable video file, the whole lecture. The lecture comprises of eight of my card routines and instructions for four card moves, card moves that um, are very good. They're not mine, but they're good ones, but you just don't see people do them very often. And I thought if you haven't seen them before, they may be useful to you as well. The, the event itself, I think, was successful. We had a small but perfectly formed group who enjoyed the thing on the night. And now if you were one of these people who wasn't able to get there, but would actually like to see the contents on my website, you'll find the Inner Circle Zoom card session video, downloadable one, of course, which you can have for £30. So if you like card magic, especially practical card magic, there's no, there are no sort of airy-fairy, heavy sleight-of-hand routines included, because quite frankly, I can't do them, and so why should you have to? But uh, there's a lot of variety, some nice plots, some stuff that you won't have seen before because it comes from a back catalogue of mine from a long time ago, plus there are some effects that I'm still selling in my in my uh, current catalogues so you get those as part of it too so go and have a look at that there's a full breakdown of all the contents on the website and that's the inner circle zoom card session and that's a downloadable downloadable video for 30 pounds for reasons that i've never fully understood we magicians seem to always want to do everything to do with our magic business ourselves so obviously we go out and do the shows, obviously, that stands to reason. But we also, when we're putting that show together, we do it ourselves. We make the trick selection, don't we? We buy the tricks, we put together the act, we decide on the order of the tricks that we're going to do. 
if there's any music involved, we'll probably make a selection from what we like and put that together ourselves. We will, if there's any choreography or movement required, then we will do that too, even though perhaps you don't know a great deal about it. And obviously what we're going to do when we want to publicise the show, yeah, we're going to do all the advertising ourselves as well. And in a way, you sort of wonder why we do all this, because each of these little parts of the magic business, a lot of them are very specialist. And if you want to do them well, you need to be a specialist in that particular area. You can't know everything about music for acts. And yet, you know, we would perhaps make a decision about that. Why don't you go to a music specialist? And I think that where this is particularly true is with advertising. We do our own copywriting and we make decisions about where we're going to put this copy, whether it's going to be in a magazine or a newspaper, if it's offline, or whether we're going to go to a specific website or have it just on our own website and so on. And chances are that nine and a half times out of ten, it's us who will be writing this copy. But are we the best people to do that? Do we know how to write good copy? Because I think sometimes what happens is, and I, I'm sure I've done it in the past, you, I've taken an advert, I've put it in a local magazine and got no response. And your natural knee-jerk reaction is to think to yourself, well, yeah, rubbish magazine, shouldn't have put an advert in there. In other words, I end up blaming the magazine when it's in fact, it could be that it was my advert just wasn't good enough to catch people's attention. It wasn't written in the right way. Now, one of the things that, that I was told once, and I, I've tried to do it as much as possible, is that when you write copy to advertise yourself, try to make the copy that you write customer benefit led. In other words, instead of just telling them constantly, what you can do, that you're a magician of this standard, you've been doing it for this many years, you, you can do this type of show, that type of show. Yeah, it's got to be in there somewhere. But if that's all it is, it's not very engaging. When somebody wants to book a magician, what they actually want, of course, is to book somebody who's going to create a wonderful atmosphere and awe and wonder at their event. And so what they're actually after is a magical problem solver. Somebody who's going to come in and who's going to energise the people who come to their party in an exciting way with magic. And if your advertising copy puts that across, if it sets out when your magic will be of a help, let's say at a wedding or something like that, and you actually spell that out, then when somebody reads it, suddenly they can identify with it. Oh, actually, yes, that's true. There is going to be a gap between the end of the service at a wedding and when we start the meal. Oh yeah, we could put magic in there. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. Whereas if you just said you do, if you just put made comment in your advert, I do magic at weddings, then that doesn't give them any ideas. If you say there's going to be a gap, I can help to entertain your guests in this gap because they will have nothing to do, etc, etc. You give a reason why your services are important and the job that they are going to do for that particular booker, it's only a subtle difference, but I think it make, can make a big difference because people will feel that you're, you're talking specifically about the problem that they now identify might be inherent in their particular event. So if, you're, if you are writing copy yourself, then take a look at what you write 
and try and stand back from it, from it and, and look at it and think, if I was reading this and I didn't know me in the advert, would I be sufficiently excited or informed to want to go to the website? Or if I'm on the website, do I want to stay for more than 20 seconds on it? Is, it, is this website talking to me? Is this person apparently the one who is going to do something special at my party? Or is he just yet another one on a long line of magicians who all do the same tricks and all say the same things and all offer the same type of packages? Because if they can say, oh, this guy's a bit different, look, he's, he understands what I'm going to need for my party, then I think that can make a big difference and could get you the odd booking where otherwise people would just go straight past you. Because let's face it, we are all in competition with each other in our area and it's not easy anymore. And the internet has opened up the possibility for bookers to look at so many different performers before they make a decision. So anything you can do to, to, to make what, you're, what you offer and what you're saying seem pertinent to the person looking obviously I think is so much the better, isn't it? So give that a think and have a look at your publicity, have a look at what you've written and see whether it actually says what it needs to say. Well, there we are, another podcast done. By the t If you're listening to this after the Jubilee and you live in the UK, I hope you had a good time. I hope the shows that you, if you had any, went well. And I shall uh, look forward to being back here again with some more magical chit chat in July. Have a good month. Bye for now.